Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. We're so happy to have Dr. Ed Green with us today. He is the Vice President of Children, Youth, and Digital Media Literary Initiatives for HITN. And uh, he is housed in New York City. Ed is a longtime friend, friend to children, and we're with him at the National Association for the Education of Young Children's Conference. And his involvement with uh, various types of media really will be the focus of our conversation, even though he's done many things in his career. Uh, And so I'm just going to pose one question to get us into the conversation here. I know, as you said, you spent many years working to develop various types of media for the purpose of educating young children and engaging their families. So how did you become interested in this area of education? Well, it's very uh, exciting to be a part of the podcast and to share this story. I think that for my my own interest in child development and early learning, it was um, particularly important during the time that I was learning about the field as a student at Pacific Oaks College in Pasadena, California. And uh, I had gone there to study child development and early learning and had a chance to teach in the children's school, which was a part of the uh, institution. And um, I had always had an interest in photography and had done a little bit of, um, of videography and had had a chance to do a cinematography apprenticeship for a very brief period of time. And I was trying to figure out how to make that work, you know, with the work that I enjoyed with children. And at the time that I was at Pacific Oaks College, I met an individual who joined the faculty, Susan Futterman. She had been at Harvard and she actually studied with Jerry Lesser. And Jerry Lesser is like one of the um, the legends related to the development of Sesame Street. And she had taken coursework with him and had uh, also learned how to look at how children interact with TV, because at that time that was the biggie. And she had uh, a whole approach to listening to what children would say about what they were looking at and then using that information to create other types of film or, or what have you. And so as, as a result of watching that, I thought, gosh, it would be great to do it with kids. So I started using an Instamatic camera with kids and um, a brownie movie camera when you still had to send them out to be processed and just wanted to see what children would do in using it to tell the stories that were related to their play and to their interactions with each other. So along with getting a very, very strong and firm grounding in child development and early learning, I was sort of able to bring this other aspect of my interest into the work that I was doing. Uh, But I also had a college uh, friend who at the time had moved to California, and it was an opportunity for him to get his career started in movies, and that wasn't going so well. But he got a call and was asked if he would read for a show that was going to be developed in, I think, in the mid-'70s called ARC 2. 
And it was uh, supposed to be like a 25th century drama, you know, in terms of what's happening when this little crew is trying to figure out what's happening on the earth after it's gone through this transformation. Anyway, long story short, Lou Scheimer and Norm Prescott, who were the directors and producers of this, were two individuals I got to meet. And at that time, it was hard to get into the industry for any reason. But my friend introduced me to uh, Norm Prescott and Lou Scheimer as, you know, a student of child development and, and from Pacific Oaks. And so I got to be on the set. I got to watch how things work. So anyway, those were some of the kinds of things that happened to me at that time that really influenced how I thought about my work in child development, but how I could also look at other ways of representing who children were, what they thought, what they felt. And so it was more of them being users of different kinds of technology as opposed to just consumers. Well, we've come a long way from a brownie movie camera, haven't we? Speaking of technology, how do you see technology as a means of engaging children and families who live in rural areas, frontier states, wilderness states, where there may be some infrastructure issues? And and what are various ways that technology could be utilized, not necessarily just based on Internet access? I love that question. And I think about it from the lens that I got to experience during the time that I was uh, director of international outreach for Sesame Workshop. And we worked in a lot of different types of environments around the world, Central America, the Andes, Kosovo, India. And one of the things that was interesting is that when you were outside of the, the, the immediate metropolitan areas where they may have had a little bit more access to, you know, receiving signals for TV or whatever, I found that people were using things that we've forgotten about. One of them is radio. There was uh, an ability to be able to give people access to information through radio because everybody basically could get a radio signal. And I think that there are messages that can, in fact, be communicated through technologies that we don't necessarily look at as being, you know, the 21st century. And so I think that that, that that just always brings me back to looking at how can, how can we use different things that are already in place to get more engagement, you know, of people in communities about things that might be of interest to families, whether it's interstitials or educational, you know, commentary that's included at the end of the broadcast to focus on, you know, issues that might be related to children and families in rural areas. So that that's just sort of one way to look at it. But I think... Many people have access to smartphones. And even if you don't have a package that allows you to, you know, use the Internet all of the time or whatever, there are some applications on those smartphones like digital recording, where if you have a story that you can tell about a relative or friend or things that are going on in your community and you, you make it short enough, you can create little mini stories for kids to hear about what's going on in the lives of families. Or you can have children themselves telling stories just using the recording of feature on that particular kind of app. But then taking it to the next level, I do think that there are ways in which you know, people can receive uh, text messaging 
through cheaper packages because some for some people now the the phone is their main vehicle it's not landline and phone anymore but how do you use text and i found that there are programs like um, ready rosie i don't know if you're familiar with ready rosie but they have have tried to come up with a way of creating very very short text and video messages so that even if you have a a limited plan you can receive a short message that may not be any more than two or three minutes that is an inspiring message about something that you can do with your child that's at home in the kitchen or in the yard or on a trip to the grocery store. So I think that we just have to look at the fact that there are ways of thinking about there's no tech experiences that we should be involved in a lot. That's talking to each other, engaging each other with the things that are around them. But then there are low tech experiences that involve some of these things that we already have on devices that can be used to tell personally meaningful stories or to share, um, you know, what it is that, that, that you're doing and, and, and allowing that to become the, the focus of conversation. So I think we just have to have other ways of, of thinking about how technology can be used as opposed to thinking about all of the bells and whistles that sometimes overtake our ability to think about how they can be used. I like to use an approach that said there's no tech, there's low tech, there's technology assisted experiences where if you have a recording of uh, of your favorite recording artist or you know country star being able to talk about what it is that's on that recording because people usually play their music from that same device but just sort of flipping the script a little bit to say um, you know what do you hear what do you, what's the story that you're you're hearing in the music and so I think there are different ways that we can we can make um, it useful but also make it uh, something that is is related to what people do have access to as opposed to all of the bells and whistles that people might say they don't have. Well, you certainly laid it out for folks, so regardless of what they have or don't have, that if they have an intention, then they would be able to utilize it. And uh, so I think that that leads us into... We've had a lot of discussion and a lot of uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics and others have raised the issue around screen time and how much is too much. Does it matter by what age the child and what is screen time actually defined as? Is that including the use of the phone screen as well as the television? Uh, So talk to us a little bit about what is, in your opinion, based on research or what do you hold as an appropriate amount of time uh, for this screen time debate? Well, that's always a difficult one because people use uh, different strategies and devices for a variety of different reasons. I remember a long time ago when my grandmother was still alive, she would talk about there would be times when she'd just want to sit the kids down in front of the radio is back to the <laughs> uh, McGee and Molly. I think that was one of the things that when I go to her house, if it came, that was one of her stories. She would turn it on. And it wasn't that I was looking at anything, but I, w- I was listening and she would give me, you know, you know, the opportunity to just to sort of have that time while she did something else. But she would ask me questions about it. And I think that's key. I don't believe that just putting something in front of a child for the sake of giving them a way to to be occupied. I don't think that's a bad thing, especially when sometimes you can leave a child totally alone. 
with nothing. But I do think that to the extent possible that uh, when you're talking about screens where there are images and, and uh, moving images and sound, I, that's, that's something that I think we should be really careful about, especially when you're talking about infants. You know, and I've seen this happen where people actually lay a tablet or whatever on the edge of a crib. I remember growing up that there was also the idea that you would play music. So I had all of these little children's songs on, that you'd play on the, um, on the record player. I think we used to recall, recall that. I think that there's some things that, that can be very, very detrimental when it, when it eliminates the adult-child interaction or children interacting with each other around things that they're playing and, and, and using to, um, you know, to learn about the world. But screen time is something that we need to be concerned about, I think, even more so from the standpoint of what is modeled even more than just, you know, are we giving it to the kids? During, there's a phrase, what you do speaks so loud, I can't hear a word you're saying. And we can say, you know, we don't want to see this happening with a lot of, um, you know, extra screen time. But adults themselves are spending a lot of time. And I remember growing up that sometimes parents would spend time on the phone talking with you know, with the intent of that's their way of communicating with others and the child may be doing whatever they're doing. But I think that the that it's really important to not focus as much on what the screen is or isn't doing, but looking at what it is that adults are doing to model the children what's important in terms of, um, you know, interactions with each other. However, I will say I remember there were times when I was growing up, if my mother had something to do, if she was, you know, fixing a meal for a larger group of people, she would say, okay, you need to watch TV while I'm finishing doing this. But that wasn't all the time. I mean, sometimes it was go outside and play. Well, I happen to have that option. And if people have that option and it's safe, that might be another way of doing it. But um, I think that it is important for us in this uh, in this digital age to come to understand what it is that devices can do, screens, um, phones, what have you, to impede uh, our ability to have strong adult-child interactions that really give the bonding that's necessary. You have given us a lot to think about, and I'm going to ask you one more question. We have many families, children entering our country that English is not their primary language. And a lot of work has been done on the use of technology to help bring about their acquisition of English. So could you share just a little bit of your view around how much technology should be integrated into classrooms or homes where that may be the primary goal is to teach English, not necessarily for them to lose their their home language, I guess the question is around what is the goal of the technology or the programming of the technology and is a use of specific programs viable as a way for people to teach children English? Wow. Um, I guess I always have to have my fallback and say that technology is a tool and there are lots of different kinds of tools that we can use and when we talk about 
um, the issue of language learning uh, and especially um, bringing a child's ability up to speed to hear and understand a language that's different than his or her home language. I think we go back to this whole notion of oral language. There are ways in which talking with children in their home language can be very, very important because they need to continue to have the grounding in that home language in order to then be able to learn a new language, whether we're using different types of tools, and sometimes those tools are our are, are experiences in, let's say, a congregate care or, or classroom setting where they use an approach that might be uh, a combination of books that are in English and in Spanish, that are in-your-lap books, and then books in English and Spanish that might be recorded in an app. And, but I think that you can have an opportunity to read a book with a child or tell a story about pictures in the home language. But you can also do the same thing in the new language by looking at pictures and telling a story as opposed to being dependent on words. Well, we really appreciate the time you spent with us, and you've given us more food for thought because this technology is evolving every day, probably every hour. So a conversation that you and I might have five years from now may have totally different conversational pieces or parameters around what it is that we will be sharing and talking about. But we really appreciate your time today. And uh, you got any final word? Yeah, I just really appreciate the work that you do, Kathy. And I think that these kinds of conversations with a variety of people about a variety of topics is an important way to use an aspect of this technology and exposure to the world. And we can do it uh, by using audio technologies. We can use it by using combinations of technologies that are visual or audio. But I'm just glad that you're bringing people to the information that hopefully will help their lives and the lives of their children to be uh, beneficial. Thank you so much, Ed Green. And now it's time for our Lit Bit, a poem that you can share with your child. Poetry is a great way to share literature with your children because they love the cadence and rhyme of poems, and uh, it's just a fun thing to share with your children. Uh, And this one is by A.A. Milner, the author of Winnie the Pooh, which is a favorite series at my house. And it's a fun little poem about a child who's inside on a rainy day, and she's staring at the window and sees two raindrops rolling down the window and begins to imagine that they're in a race to see which one will get to the bottom. Waiting at the Window by A.A. Milner. These are my two drops of rain waiting on the window pane. I'm waiting here to see which the winning one will be. Both of them have different names. One is John and one is James. All the best and all the worst comes from which of them is first. James has begun to ooze. He's the one I want to lose. John is waiting to begin. He's the one I want to win. James is going slowly on. Something sort of sticks to John. John is moving off at last. James is going pretty fast. John is rushing down the pane. James is going slow again. 
James has met a sort of smear. John is getting very near. Is he going fast enough? James has found a piece of fluff. John has quickly hurried by. James was talking to a fly. John is there, and John has won. Look, I told you. Here's the sun. Waiting at the Window by A.A. Milna. And that is retrieved from FamilyFriendPoems.com. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.